Good morning. You guys doing well? How could you not be doing well after a worship set like that, huh? Those are great songs. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be looking uh, at verse 26, and we'll take that all the way into chapter 4, verse 7. This is our Freedom Teaching Series, For Freedom Christ Has Set Us Free. Uh, that's the subtitle. It's based on Galatians 5.1. This morning, we're going to talk about the experience of the gospel. This is not only the climax of the book of Galatians, but the climax of the gospel. Take a look at the uh, quote there on your notes by Sinclair Ferguson. The notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. Now, this is what we need to know as it relates to the Christian life. The Christian life is, is both re- rational and relational. The gospel is both rational and relational. It's both rational, objective, left brain. That's that part of the brain that, that's more analytical. But it's also relational. It's very left brain. It's very subjective. Um, And so the gospel, we could say, is head sound and heart satisfying. It's intellectually sound. It's it's based on on history. It's historical, evidential, factual. But you don't want to stop there. You've got to move it all the way into the heart to where it becomes experiential, satisfying. Take a look at this uh, kind of formula here on your notes. Theology, which is the head minus doxology, which would be the heart, all in intimacy with God, equals dead orthodoxy. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, they honor me with their lips, but their what is far from me? Yeah, their heart is far from me. So it's possible to have your head, your cranium filled with theology and not have that, that doxology, that all in intimacy with God, and that becomes dead ortho, orthodoxy. Paul writing to Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, he says, it is a form of godliness but denying its power. That's what that is. So theology minus doxology equals dead orthodoxy. Doxology, which would be heart minus head equals idolatry. It's a violation of the first three of the Ten Commandments, you're creating a God in your own image, a figment of your own, your own imagination. But here's the formula that works. This is what God wants for us. Theology plus doxology. So good solid theology based on God's word plus doxology, all in intimacy with God. That's the heart. That's where we become whole. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, in beholding the glory of God, we become whole. Seeing and savoring God, so seeing him, theology, savoring him, doxology, is at the heart of mental health. And so that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to become whole. That's, that's uh, what holiness is or sanctification. But it comes as a result of good, good solid theology plus doxology equals that, that wholeness. That's where we're headed. And, and in particular, it is about being children of God. And so before we uh, look at this text and unpack these notes, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. Father God, we were created by you for you to give glory to you, and you are most glorified 
in us when we are most satisfied in you. And we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that as we increase in our theology, our study of you, that you would give us greater capacity for doxology, awe and intimacy with you, bringing to us a life-liberating, soul-satisfying psychology, a wholeness from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. So, so this whole chapter three of Galatians, he's been uh, kind of summarized in verse three. Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's just saying, hey, all of our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We begin reading verse 26. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Already done. If you put your faith in, in Jesus Christ, that's the legal status. And he's gonna spell out, he's gonna give us the benefits of this legal status. So for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's uh, Paul's one of his favorite metaphors, putting on Christ, clothing yourself with Christ. And then verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, talks of culture there, there is neither slave nor free, that's class, there is no male and female, that's gender, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's just saying, hey, God has no secret society of intimate friends. We can all have relationship with him. The ground in front of the cross is level, so there's no hierarchy. There should be no superiority or inferiority within the body of Christ. And then verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We talked about that last week, the promise. Now chapter four, verse one, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So he's making this contrast between being a uh, hired servant or a slave versus a child. And what he's gonna say right here is that before you came to know Christ, you were slaves. Slaves... Uh, as he says here, to the elementary principles of this world, and then next week we'll talk more about what that means, but notice verse two, he says, but he is under guardians, so a child, though he's an owner of everything, he's under guardians, he's like a slave, under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, so he's just using this as an analogy, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. We are enslaved to all kinds of things in this world before we came to know Christ. Once again, making the contrast between being in slavery versus sonship. But when the fullness of time had come, now here's the key, kind of a key thought here. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So why did he do that? To give us this legal status as sons. That's why he did that. Notice it says, verse five, to redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem there has the idea of uh, buying someone out of a slavery. They're enslaved, and so it'd be like someone showing up and they buy you out of, buy your slavery and then set you free. That's what Christ has done. We were in slavery to so many things in this world. We'll talk more about it next week. But Christ came and set us free from that enslavement to redeem those who were under the law the other law is, it, is an idea, it's a principle of trying to earn your salvation. It's, it's all about performance. So that we might receive adoption as sons. So not only did he forgive us of our sins, he brought us into his family. We're his kids. 
And then the, another key verse, this is a sweet verse, verse 6, and because you are sons. Now, that's a fact. That's what he's saying. It's, uh, it's, he's given us this legal status as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So he gave us his spirit to give us an experience of this legal status. That's what he's saying here. And then uh, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave. Don't you see that? You're not a slave. Quit acting like slaves. But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, uh, so you can see how we've uh, laid out the outline. So we've got, first of all, theology. God sent his son into the world. And then we've got doxology. That's our heart. God sent his spirit into our hearts to make that legal status real to us. And then we'll end by talking about our, our wholeness, being, becoming whole, how we can make sure that that's getting deep into our heart, transforming our lives and so theology, God sent his son into the world, chapter 4, verse 4. And so this is what's true. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, this is what separates, every, uh, separates Christianity from every major religion and cult in our world today. Every, everything else is a works righteousness. This is a grace and faith righteousness. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. So by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are sons of God. Keep your Bibles open because I'll keep referring back to this. And so he's... He's giving us and spelling out this legal status, uh, describing um, really the blessings of this legal status. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, what's interesting is that in ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, son meant legal heir. And uh, it was a status forbidden to women, but the gospel tells us we are all men and women, are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. So ladies, you shouldn't be offended by that, because that's, that just means you're a legal heir. And men, we shouldn't be offended by the fact that we're part of the bride of Christ, okay? That's, uh, that's uh, the implications of those are unbelievably profound, and so oftentimes they'll try to come up with a, a gender-neutral Bibles and it's not good, it's not healthy because there's a, there's a reason for calling all of us sons of God, legal heirs. He's going to treat us like firstborn children. We receive all of the inheritance. And so that's why I was saying God has no respecter of persons. He doesn't have any favorites. Well, he does. It's his son, but, but we've put our faith in his son and so now we're his favorites. And so that's, that's the idea here. And uh, so this immediate status change when we put our faith in Jesus Christ gives you security and significance that is beyond anything this life can offer apart from God. There's a couple of verses that we taught our kids growing up, and it's, uh, you can write this down on your notes. I don't think it's on your notes. It's a great cross-reference. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this. What, what is he wanting us to boast about? That we know him. That we know him. And how are we to know him? The Bible makes it very clear that we relate to him as our father, as our daddy, and we're his children. And what the writer here in Jeremiah is saying, that there's not a, a, a smart person or a strong person, we could say athletic person or a rich person that has anything on any of us if we have Christ in our life and we are children of God. That's the point. The security and the significance that we have in him 
is incomparable to anything that we could have in this world. Now, if the idea of God as your father stirs up negative connotations because of your, because of your earthly father, um, what you need to do is not fight or flight, that's our natural tendency, but to face it and press on through those negative feelings and what you're gonna discover is that unlike your earthly father, your heavenly father will never, ever, ever neglect you or abuse you. And the more you begin to understand that, that security and significance that we have by being called sons of God, it's gonna give you a peace that goes beyond all understanding and a value and an importance that uh, can't be compared. So we're sons of God, we have security and significance. We're also clothed in Christ. Clothed in Christ for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Some translations use that word. I, I, I prefer clothed in Christ, but put on Christ is Paul's uh, favorite metaphor to, uh, to give us uh, really an understanding of what this is, is uh, our relationship through Jesus Christ and with the Father. And notice what he says here, first of all, for as many of you as were baptized, submerged, saturated into Christ. Um, we're doing a water baptism next weekend. I can hardly wait. I love it. It's a, it's a great time of celebration. We'll put a big tank here if you've never been here for one, a big old tank right here. And so we'll get a chance to dunk a few folks. And, and the reason for this is that when you make a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, the very first thing you want to do is to make that public. And what you're doing is you're making a public declaration. It's a dramatization. It's a demonstration of you identifying with the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Atonement at one moment. He's reconciled you to the Father. What he did, he did for you in your place. And it's pretty profound, pretty amazing. And we would love the opportunity to be able to hold you under the water. Yeah. Until we think that it's appropriate to bring you up. <laughs> I'm kidding. So you can probably pretty much figure out that, guess how long they held me under the water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, for a real long time. <laughs> no, we won't hold you under, but we, it's just a real quick dunk. It's, you're submerged. Basically, you're just saying, man, I'm, I'm submerged in Jesus Christ. I'm clothed in him. That idea of, of being clothed in Christ is... Uh, it really gives us some really under, great understanding. Identity and purpose is what that is. So when we are clothed in Christ, it speaks of our identity and purpose. In the movie Rocky, how many have ever seen the movie? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's an old movie. And uh, the 20 sequels after that, uh, I mean, I, I think they're still making Rocky movies even to this day, aren't they? They just make one after another and so... You gluttons over here that like watching that movie. But it's an interesting movie. Uh, Rocky won. His girlfriend asked him why it was so important for him to go the distance in the, in the boxing match. You got it. He said, anybody know? He knows. Yeah. Why, why do you want to go the distance in the boxing match? And he said, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Isn't that interesting? So, so Rocky is working for his identity rather than from his identity. There's a major difference between that. If your identity is in your work, your family, your looks, your athleticism, whatever, you could add anything to that, then success will 
will go to your head. Failure will go to your heart. Success will inflate you. Failure will deflate you. And, uh, and so you and I are either living to justify ourselves or we are living because we are justified. And so we've got to understand that. So I don't have to work for my identity. I have all the identity I need in Jesus Christ. And, and not only identity, but it gives me purpose. And, and my identity, remember the words that were spoken over Jesus when he was at his baptism and then also on the Mount of Transfiguration? His father spoke to him these words. Anybody remember? What are those words? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How many would love to hear the father speak those words to you? Woo, he did. He did through Jesus. Through Jesus, those are words to you and I because of what Jesus did for us. In fact, those are the words that should echo in your heart every, every day, every morning when your feet hit the floor. You should hear from the Father, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That would be the most important thing you could reflect on, think about. That's that immediate status change that happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's so important. You are my beloved son with you I am well pleased. Now why is that true? Let me have you write down a couple more verses here, cross-references. 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that's verse 17 and then verse 21. And it says, those that are in Christ have become a new creation, new identity. All things have passed away, all things have become new. You're a brand new person in Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin, who's he? Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. New identity. All the acceptance, security, significance we'll ever need in him. And that's the reason why we don't work for our identity, we work from an identity. We work from a completeness, contentment in him. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. I'm already proven in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. I don't have to try to prove anything to anybody. I can rest in him. My, I'm proven to Christ. He speaks to me regularly. You're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we can approach God as if we were as beautiful, heroic, faithful as Jesus himself. All that is his is ours. Your identity is firmly anchored in Christ's accomplishments, not yours, his performance, not yours. Everything that Jesus has done is now legally true of you. That's what he means by clothed in Christ. It's, it's unbelievable. And so our, our identity and our purpose. So when Christ, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And when people look at us, they should also see Jesus as we're living that out. That's our purpose is to display his beauty and glory in our lives. And then the third, we are one in Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. As I said, that's culture. There's no cultural division. There is neither slave nor free. That's class. There is no male and female, that's gender division. He's saying there's, none of these divisions are in the family of God. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this gives us one in Christ, unity and harmony. If there's any entity, any organization, any group of people, any family on this planet Earth that should have unity and harmony, it should be the church. When people come in here and hang out with us, they go, wow, I can't believe how well these guys get along and how much they love each other. And they should look at our families and our marriages in the same way. And so unity and harmony. People who go through life and death situations together not only have a closer bond than others, but have a bond that transcends 
uh, culture, class, gender. I, I saw, I've seen that with people in the military. I've seen that uh, with police officers. We've got a number of police officers here. But I also experienced that on the fire department because of the kind of the things that we dealt with regularly. Blood and guts, fighting fires, going into buildings, risking our lives, various things like that. So there's a, there's a bondedness. And if that's true... If that's true, then even more so is it true in Christ because we have gone from death to life in Christ. We, we have a spiritual bond of unity and harmony within our diversity. It's not eliminating our diversity, but within our diversity of culture, class, and, and gender. There should never be an attitude of superiority, inferiority in God's family. We are all equal in importance but different in performance, different in, in culture, class, and gender. And then we're heirs of Christ, verse Verse 29 of chapter 3. So we're kind of unpacking this legal status that we have, the benefits of it. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We talked about this last week. This gives us fulfillment and fruitfulness. It was a promise of relationship with God to see and experience God along with a land and lineage. Land represents fulfillment. Lineage represents fruitfulness, legacy, impact. So, so our theology, God sent his son into the world to give us this legal status so that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are sons of God. That gives us security and significance. Clothed in Christ, that gives us identity and purpose. One in Christ, unity and harmony. Heirs of Christ, fulfillment and fruitfulness. The son's purpose was to secure us the legal status of our sonship. Chapter 4, verse 4, that's theology. There's our theology. We can't stop there. That's our theology. You got to know it. Now the Spirit's purpose, this is where we take it, the Spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of it. It's one thing to know it, it's another thing to experience it. That's chapter four, verse six, that's our doxology. So the work of the Son brings us an objective legal status that is ours, whether we feel it or not. Whether you feel like a son of God or not, you are if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit brings us a, a radically subjective experience of our legal status. And we're going to look at the marks and its characteristics in just a moment. Let me give you a couple stories here to kind of help you to bridge the gap here between the two so, what I'm, so you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, a, a Puritan, dead theologian, he, he shares a story of a father and son. He says this, picture a man walking along a road with his boy, his little boy, holding hands, father and son, son and father. The little boy knows the man is his father and that his father loves him. Suddenly the father stops, picks up the boy, lifts him up into his arms, embraces him and kisses him. The boy is actually no more a son when, his, when he's being embraced and kissed than he was before. The father's action has not changed the status of the boy, but oh, oh, the difference in the enjoyment of the status. It hasn't changed the status. It's the enjoyment of the status. That's what we're talking about here. So he sent his son into the world to give us this legal status. He sends his Holy Spirit into our heart to give us the experience of this legal status. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher many years ago, preached a sermon on four words in the middle of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Those four words, the father kissed him. And it was, he was preaching on the spirit of adoption. 
And you guys are probably familiar with the, with the story, the younger son who had squandered his inheritance on wild living and prostitutes had no idea what was waiting for him. What was waiting for him? The robe, the ring, the shoes, the fattened calf, the celebration. And yet when you hear this inner dialogue that's going on, he's, he's in the pig pen, he comes to his senses, he's got this inner dialogue happening and he's thinking to himself, wait a minute, why am I here? My, my dad treats his hired servants better than what I'm experiencing right now. I know what I'll do. I'll go home to my dad and, and I'll, I'll tell him, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. And little did he know the father was not going to have anything to do with that. In fact, when he comes home, it's, it's so fascinating. It's just been such a, uh, a captivating story for me to remind me of, of, of God's love for us. That even when we wander away, he's waiting for us. He's ready to throw a party. He's ready to give us the ring, the robe, the, the shoes, the fatted calf, the celebration. But see, the son didn't believe it. He had the status of a son, but the mindset of a hired servant. So what did the father do? The father kissed him. The father kissed him. And what's, uh, it's interesting because most people would think, well, he's just being humble. No, actually what's happening here, it's an insult to the father's wealth and generosity. He doesn't understand his status. He's still a son of this man. This man still loves him. It's interesting that uh, Spurgeon said in the middle of this sermon, in fact, you can Google search this and read the sermon. It's a phenomenal sermon. It's, uh, but uh, sermon, uh, Spurgeon said in the middle of, the, of that sermon, some of us have known what it is to be happy to live. The love of God has been so overwhelmingly experienced by us on a few occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight for we could not endure it anymore. If God had not shielded his love and glory a bit, I think we would have died for joy. That's an amazing experience and that's the experience of this legal status. Let me ask you this. Have you had that experience before? I, I hope you have. See, that's what, that's what we can experience. That's why he sends his Holy Spirit into our heart. Because we are sons, he sends us his Holy Spirit into our heart, and we cry out, Abba, Father. There's an experience of the reality of our legal status. That's what he's saying here. I have those, those experiences from time to time when I'm studying God's word. I have those experiences from time to time, I mean, during times of worship. There are times of worship here at Desert Breeze that I'm just so overwhelmed. If I don't stop thinking about the words up there, I won't be able to get through the, the message. So I'm just, just crying and weeping and overwhelmed with that joy and the love that I have in Jesus. I saw that at our linger night. I saw people come up and read verses. They couldn't even get through the verses. Some of them were just overwhelmed with a sense of, oh my goodness, this is powerful stuff. God, God's here. There was that sense of just being overwhelmed with joy in the presence of God. And that's the doxology. God sent his spirit into our hearts. Chapter 4, verse 6. What are its marks, its characteristics? It's a prayer life that is alive and meaningful. That's your next couple fill in the blanks. That's from, and we're just kind of dissecting this one verse. He sent the spirit, the spirit into our hearts so it's alive and meaningful versus dead and mechanical because you have the Holy Spirit living within you. 
And then it's deep, profound passion and feeling for God. Into our hearts, heart speaks of what we most treasure and, and find our deepest pleasure. I got to read to you something that I got uh, last weekend. This was dropped in the offering box. And it's a little sweet girl. Um, her name is Vittoria. Uh, and uh, on there she put Vittoria, and then uh, she, it says we're event payment. She says, no money. And then uh, Pastor Ray from Vittoria, and uh, this is a little eight-year-old girl who was diagnosed with brain cancer. And some of you know who, who we're talking about, and we prayed for her, and the doctors didn't give her much hope, but they didn't know her, I don't think they knew her daddy in heaven because uh, she just recently got a, clear, a clean bill of health. And uh, praise God, praise God. But she, she wrote this uh, to me, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. She's got to see the cross on the back of that. And then she said this on the front. It's got a heart with an arrow through it, a cross. It says, God set us free to live. He knows, she spelled knows, N-O-W-S. He knows us more than everything. Victoria. And then this is one I really love. Is that on this little card, this piece of paper, uh, she said, for I am who made me. It's like pretty profound. <laughs> what? What did you just say? I am? That's, that's how God identified himself to Moses there in the third chapter of Exodus. Because Moses says, well, who's sending me? I am is sending you. I am that I am. In other words, I'm the infinite, eternal creator, sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And this is what she says. For I am who made me. Do you think this little girl, eight-year-old, has a sense of who God is? Oh, I'll guarantee you she does. And then she says, he is hope. Love and a huge dad to us all. Isn't that crazy? What does it say in the 18th chapter of Matthew? Uh, he's, Jesus' disciples came up to him and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'll tell you who's the greatest. Little children, that's what he said. And unless you come to me as a little child with the humility of a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's what we're getting here with these verses. The Holy Spirit in our hearts and we cry out, Abba, Father, a prayer life that is alive and meaningful, deep, profound passion and feeling for God, a sense of God's manifested presence. That's the next, crying. The word crying implies a sense of God's real presence, just as a child calls out for help knowing that mom or dad will come to their aid. That's the idea of that. Um, crying out and then uh, a confidence of his love and assurance of an open arm welcome. That's where we get those words, Abba, Father. This is baby talk. The first words of the little Hebrew children was Abba. First words of American children are what? Mine, no. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, I, they're probably dad, dad, or mama, or something like that. But, but that's the idea here. It's, it's baby talk. Let me take you back to a verse. You don't need to turn there, but Luke 15, 20. It's just a, it's a powerful verse. I mean, I, a lot of times, I mean, hey, guess what? Guess what? We all kind of stray a bit, don't we? Don't we wander away from our, our king, our savior, our God, our father? And we wonder, like this son, we have the, we, we have the status. We don't, we're not going to lose the status of being a son, but we have the mindset of a hired servant. We think somehow we've got to come back and earn it back. Little do we know what's awaiting for us is a ring, a robe, 
Yeah, you know, shoes, a, a party, butchered fatted calf. That's what's waiting for us. Listen to these words. This is actually from Luke 15, 20. And, and he arose. This is the prodigal son, the one that went out and spent all the inheritance. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Literally, the Greek there, he smothered him with kisses. Wait a minute. This is the son that just went and spent all the inheritance that you gave him on wild living and prostitute. Yeah, yeah. But he's still my son and I love him. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. That's beautiful. Yes. Oh my goodness. This is, it's overwhelming. My goodness, why wouldn't we always run back into his arms? Well, we believe a lie. We're hired servants. We, we act more like hired servants than, than sons and daughters. And uh, so let me ask you this question. Are you living your life more like a cringing, fearful slave, hired servant, or a confident, fearless child of the creator and sustainer of the universe? See, and that's in verses one through three of chapter four. He's basically what he was saying there, using that analogy, that picture he says all human beings are spiritual slaves before coming to Christ. Even as a Christian, you can be free objectively but still live like a slave practically. And that's why he says in verse 7, is the last verse as we read our text, so you are no longer a slave but a son. That's what he's saying. He's trying to get it through our minds. Come on, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. You're a son of God. And... Uh, for a child of God, there is confidence and assurance every day. We don't walk in fear of anyone or anything because our Father owns the place. He does. And we are in his hands. I mean, the more you understand that you, that you are a son of God, you won't be defensive. You're not going to be defensive. You're not going to be upset about criticism. You're not going to be driven. You're not going to be obsessive. You're going to be filled with compulsive behavior. You're not going to be always punishing yourself with guilt and shame. You're not going to be comparing yourself secretly to others all the time, filled with jealousy, envy, bitterness, disappointment, and self-doubt. I mean, why should we ever feel jealous, envious, anxious, or depressed as children of God? We shouldn't. There's no way. That's the point that he's trying to get across. 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. That word great is an idiomatic phrase. They don't even know how to translate it. The translator said, I mean, he's, he's like saying, you know, idiomatic phrases are like, it's raining cats and dogs as it was yesterday if you were on this side of town. And how do you translate that into Japanese? They, Japanese would go, what? Cats and dogs, what's that about? From the sky? And it doesn't make sense. And that's, that's a little bit of what he's saying here. How great, this is out of this world. If you had any idea of the fact that you are a child of God, you would live with this perpetual, ongoing wonder, gratitude, and indebtedness. I'm gonna show you a, a video clip here. It's from, uh, it's one of my favorite video clips. It's from the movie, The Martian Child. And it's about a, a young boy who is abandoned by his parents, and to cope with his rejection, he pretends to be from Mars. And this pretense causes him to be a social misfit with really bizarre kinds of behavior. And uh, it's like all of us. We're a bunch of social misfits with bizarre kind of behavior because uh, we are desperately needing to hear the words from our daddy in heaven. You are my beloved son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. We're desperate for that. 
And John Cusack, a widower, adopts him and tries to love him out of his dysfunction. And at the very end of the movie, um, the little boy goes out on a ledge to wait for a spaceship to, to pick him up, and John Cusack goes out to get him. And what's interesting, you can hear this little boy struggling, having been abandoned by his parents. You hear this as he's sharing this, why did they leave me? And so... Uh, John here, the character that he plays, uh, he says to this little boy, I believe that are really the words that we can hear from our Father in heaven regularly. Hebrews 13, five through six, I will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. Watch this. Um, if the two, two things that we should uh, be hearing regularly. If, if this Bible, this is true, and he sent his son into this world and he sent his Holy Spirit into our heart. There's two things, and that is, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased, and that's because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's, that's done. That's our legal status. We can't screw that up. It's ours through Jesus. It's not based on our performance. The second thing we should hear over and over again, I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you or forsake you. That's actually what those words in Hebrews 13, five through six are saying. It's, it's really redundant, it's just like, I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you or forsake you. So here's the question, so let's talk about this wholeness. That'll bring wholeness to you, mental health, unlike you've ever experienced before. All of our problems, when we act out and do stupid stuff, when we, when we follow after sin, it's because we're not living in the reality of that. And, and we might know it, you know, it, it might be as we, as we said here, we know, we know it intellectually, theologically. We don't know it doxologically. We, have, we still have the mindset of a servant. So how do, we, how do we make it go deeper into our heart? Here's some things that we can do. Wholeness. You are no longer a slave but a son. What can we do to feel less like a slave and more like a son? Number one, you need a steady, healthy dose of deep theology. That's why we study the scriptures at the depth that we do here on weekend services. I know it's a turn off in our culture today where we just wanna kinda come and go and do it really quick. We, we spend some time really reflecting and thinking and diving deep. It, 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 and you need more than just a nice little devotional talk. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. We need to go deep into his word. We do that week in and week out. It takes us a little longer to do that. And that's what I love about you guys. You guys are cool with that and you guys want that. And so we need that. It's study. First Timothy uh, chapter four, verses seven through eight. It says uh, really there, let me uh, paraphrase it. Physical training has some value, but spiritual training has value for both this life and the life to come. Now, Nothing can be real to your heart that isn't first clear to the mind. Our hearts cannot be inflamed by something we know not of. So if you want your heart to be on fire for God, you gotta get to know him. You gotta dive deep into his word. And unless we know God deeply, that's our theology, we cannot love God deeply. That's our doxology. And uh, that's why we study at the depth that we do here on Sunday mornings. That's why we give you growing notes. That's why we encourage you to get involved in our small groups and uh, come to our various classes that we offer. Number two, what we've got to do from that is learn to bring biblical truth down into your heart until it catches fire. We've got to learn how to meditate. Now, Psalm 1 is a meditation about meditation. 
Slow reflection and meditation is a lost art in our hyperactivity and attention deficit disorder culture. And it hinders, it hinders true intimacy with God. It hinders intimate relationship with God. And so we need to hear those words. In fact, I would encourage you to take those words from Mark 1.11. You are my beloved son in whom I well please. It was spoken over Jesus. Those are words spoken to us. And this is what meditation is. It is thinking through the biblical implications intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. I mean, I do this all the time. I've got uh, verses in here on three by five cards. I can't find them right now, but they're somewhere in here. Oh, there they are. And I put these, and I take these with me. And I reflect on them, and I begin to live them out. And I begin to ask myself questions like, am I living in light of this? What difference does this make? Am I taking this seriously? If I believed and held on to this, how would that change things? When I forget this, how does that affect me in all my relationships? And that's just kind of, you're working it deep into your heart. Believe me, you do that, God will begin to make himself real to you unlike you've experienced. Here's the next one. Ask God regularly to fill you with his Holy Spirit. That's through prayer. So you got study, meditate on scripture, prayer. This is not getting more of God, but God getting more of you. This is truly the spirit-filled life is what we're talking about here where Christ and all that he's done for us becomes more real to us and we're crying out to God, Abba, Father, because the Holy Spirit indwells us. Number four, Identify where you may be grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, don't quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. So what we have to do is repent. Now, underneath that, I gave you a lot of different, kind of part of a checklist. We did a study this last Easter Easter 2015, you can go back on our archives and listen to this message. I go into all of these in more detail. Revive your passion. That's what we talked about that weekend. I go into these, but let me walk through these. So an unclear purpose can put the fire out because you're just kind of scattered. You're you're going every which way. You're not really focused on what God has for you. This can create an unbalanced schedule. Unapplied truth, if you walk out of here and don't apply this to your life, take it and work it deep into your heart. You're not going to experience what God has for you. Undernourished soul, if you're just showing up to church once in a while, you're not plugged into a small group, you're not reading your Bible regularly. Unsupported lifestyle, if you don't have people in your life that come alongside of you and encourage you and challenge you to think deeper about the issues of your life, you need that. Unresolved conflict, oh my goodness, that'll keep you from experiencing what God has for you. Or unresolved sin, you're in a pattern of sin that you haven't sought help for. Or unexpected loss or abuse that you haven't grieved appropriately. It creates a hardening of your heart. All of those things can keep us from what God has for us. Let me summarize, let me end here by saying C.S. Lewis's quote. This is what it comes down to. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted. That's our theology. In spite of our of your changing moods. That's our doxology. Our moods in doxology, our intimacy and all with God is gonna be changing. But we're gonna hang on to our theology, what Christ has done for us once and for all. And we're gonna get through those moods to higher ground and and higher experiences of what he has for us. I'm gonna pray. Our band's gonna come up here and we're gonna end on a song. It's one of my favorite songs that talks about, that celebrates that we are his sons and daughters. And that's what I want just for you to take a few moments this morning and to just absorb what we've talked about. Just 
take a moment and say, God, I want to hear from you that I am your son in whom you are well pleased. I want to hear from you, God, in my heart. I know it. I know it theologically. I want to know it doxologically. I want to know it deep within my heart. So as we sing this song, that's what you're asking to do to experience this. Let me pray. Father God, you sent your son into the world, into this world to secure this objective legal status of our being your dearly beloved children. And you sent your Holy Spirit into our hearts to secure the actual subjective experience of this legal status deep within our hearts. We pray that as we study, as we meditate, as we pray, as we, as we repent, that we would live our lives less like cringing, fearful slaves and more like confident, fearless sons and daughters of you, the creator and the sustainer of the universe for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Stand with us as we sing this song.